Hi, Rick. Hi, Chris. How are you, sir? That's a nice shirt you have. Thank you. <laughs> you going dancing? Not tonight. It, what, what was your favorite movie? Like, was it Saturday Night Fever by Travolta? You know, I don't think I've ever seen that film, to be honest. What about, no, Urban Cowboy. That's your favorite movie. I've never seen all of that film either. But. Uh, Tootsie. That was a, that's a. I have seen all of that film. Um, I guess he's a nice guy, Dustin Hoffman. Uh, so I've heard. We work with his kid on some, uh, some film projects. All right. So what is the deal with thermoluminescence, Rick, and dating? Thermoluminescence. Uh, with pottery and mostly with pottery, there are some other materials that can undergo that test. Basically, um, if you heat stuff up, it emits light. And the longer it's been in the ground, the less... Uh, the less error there is in dating it. I see. Um, I don't know the intricacies of how you actually do the test. I'm only reading what's out there about the test. So. And it's hard to these, I think it's only universities are doing this test now. Um, our private companies starting. The point is that the, the wait lists to get your artifact tested are so tremendous. And if you have a questionable weird artifact they're not going they're to not test it they won't test it for you because oh that's a that's made by a cult or that's a hoax or whatever right so you're just totally stuck to their system to use their equipment and it could take years and they may not date it anyway so um getting back to guatemala um with the hundreds of thousands hundred thousand pyramids or more or whatever um Guatemalan names are very, um, what is the word? They're very, aren't they Asiatic? Uh, they're China, China names. Uh, um, Some people think there's a connection to the Dene language, which is the middle coastal area of the United States and Apaches and whatnot. But uh, there are differing opinions, of course. Um, but yeah, there, there's a connection, perceived connection at least, between some Chinese language features and the names in Guatemala. Yeah, it's like the land of Guata is Chinese. Um, I'll, I'll, I'll get to more of that. So um, very peaceful people, uh, even up to the southwest, I believe, very peaceful, the Buddha. Um, but then you also come from the other side, Guatemala being Mayan. Uh, because the Nubians were the were the were the Egyptian. What was it? The their their army, their tough guys type thing. Well, no, actually, Nubia was a separate country uh, most of the time. Sometimes Nubia waltzed in and took over Lower Egypt. Uh, I, I should say Upper Egypt because it's the upper stretches of the Nile. Uh, but the Nubians were typically very black Africans sub-Saharan skin types, uh, and the Egyptians were less so, unless they were being ruled by the Nubians. Um, but anyway, yeah, the, but how does, how does that relate to Guatemala? That's a great question. 
Um, but the Nubians, they sometimes were working with the Egyptians as because the Egyptians had their own as mercenaries. Navy. Yes, right. So the Nubians were their um, navy or helped them with sea travel. You know, Nubians uh, didn't really have uh, a navy. They were a riverine. They had a riverine maritime thing. They plied the Nile a lot. The Phoenicians, on the other hand, were contracted by uh, various and sundry um, Egyptians to do various tasks, including be a navy, a battling navy. But also Hanno, a Phoenician sea captain, circumnavigated Africa at the request or at, at the contract with uh, the pharaoh. So that was their navy. And so you also had Mali, which is West Africa, a yep. African, um, I was going to say African-American, an African uh, seafaring group that went across the ocean, uh, but they yep. used more smaller rafts, right? Well, until they got together with the Senegalese, the Senegalese made ace boats, uh, ships, I should say. Uh, and they had technologies that most of the rest of the sailing world did not have. Uh, the Senegalese built ships 100, 150 feet long. That's, and, sorry, Rick. Go ahead. That's the easiest launching place to go to the Americas is that southern route, yes. correct? Yes. Um, okay, so we've gone through some of that. Let's see. So UFOs and crop circles. You believe that some crop circles are real? They tend to happen around UFO sightings? Do you think there's a correlation there? Um, there seems to be a correlation, but correlation and causation are two different things. So need more info. Because a lot of those crop circles are fake, but yep. some of them are not made by man. Right. Got the name of Roger Sugden did some ace research on this um right down to taking radiation readings and uh tissue samples of the grasses or wheat or whatever was in the field and he came up with a, a pretty good test on what was a real crop circle and what was a fake crop circle so well the people are amazing the ones that do the fake ones i'll give them that uh, yes agreed <laughs> But UFO sightings around those things. Um, last thing about that is, is there a, a base or site in Texas where people have gone down nine levels uh, and seen different UFO things? Is that in Texas? No, it's in the Four Corners area of um, Colorado, Utah, um, New Mexico, and Arizona, I think. But and people have gone down these different levels and seen things and supposedly... Supposedly, yeah. Well, I, I haven't get, been there. And you, you just don't know who you can obviously believe. Um, okay, so one issue that I just want to share with everyone is, so like in Iran, which, uh, you know, that whole area was Mesopotamia, right? Which is where Iraq is. Yes. Um, that it's going to take... They have, they have like just a few archaeologists you know a few people doing this type of work and they've there's so much buried under the ground and over the next several hundred years they won't have enough manpower 
to find these sites and to prove this ancient history, this lost history. The same at Poverty Point, where 1% has been excavated there. That was a major smelting, melting copper site. So yep. I just want to share it with the world that you're dealing with not enough manpower. <coughs> um, and so you basically have these amateurs that are trying to do the best they can. Uh, and, and there's not enough people doing this stuff. Otherwise they'd find stuff buried all over the world. Well, that's true. But then uh, that goes back to, um, um, Gloria Farley. And she was writing about all the ancient coins that were found in the United States, whether it was, you know, kicked up by a chicken scratching or a farmer turning soil. They're not found by archeologists. Therefore they're useless to archeology. And they have to be fakes or misinterpretations because, well, there's one exception, however, and that is the Norse penny that was found in a mound in Maine by an archaeologist. <laughs> it has to be found by an archaeologist. Yes. I'll give you another example. Here in the state of Indiana, there is exactly one Clovis point that is on the list for Indiana because it was found by an archaeologist. There are thousands of Clovis points. I've got three or four in my collection, uh, but they weren't found by an archaeologist. That's unbelievable, Rick. Good, good thing to share with the world. And so imagine one of our listeners finds something. And <laughs> this happens all the time. And they say, oh, that, that must have fallen out of some 16th century Spanish person's pocket. I yeah. mean, oh, you know, I mean, and then you're like, oh, uh, okay, uh, I'll just forget about it then. Like, unbelievable. Yeah. Um, all right, so let's jump around. I have, we have so much to talk about. It's unbelievable. So, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead. Okay. Still on the subject of coins, uh, Roman coins have been found pretty much all over the United States at this point, up until. I don't know, 15 years ago, I knew of none past uh, the Rocky Mountains, but then I was contacted by a person in Utah who found 368, I think it was, Roman coins in a cache uh, and, and showed some of them to me. And there are second and third century Roman coins. That seems to be the theme of what you find of Roman coins in the United States. Most of them have been in the Ohio Valley, but not all of them. Uh, there's also a Byzantine coin that I know of that was found in Wisconsin. So 800 AD or so. <coughs> I'm sorry. In Wisconsin, you had um, ancient Egyptian coins found in Georgia. Uh, there's all kinds of examples of coins, but they weren't found by archaeologists. That's why Gloria Farley wrote what she wrote. And, and Roman swords found, uh, uh, Roman baths uh, found. And so, Rick, your book on Romans coming to the Americas, in addition to other groups, but what is your contention about the Ninth Legion being lost and perhaps coming here? They weren't lost. They were sent here for a very specific purpose. That's my contention. Um and they fulfilled that mission, and at least one of them went back to the old world and used what he had learned over there. And what he had learned was how to control 
traffic for tribute slash tax slash tithe, whatever you want to call it. Um, and where he did that, interestingly enough, was uh, in the same valley that you saw in one of the uh, Indiana Jones movies. You know, the Half Moon Valley that they talked about. The yeah. Roman treasury was built by Romans, of course, but very specifically, a guy by the name of, uh, um, wow, don't know if I can pull his name out right now. Anyway, uh, he had been a minor officer in the Ninth Legion when it disappeared from history. You know, that whole trade secrets thing, trade routes, trade sources, etc. Um, Carus was his last name, Amelius Carus. Anyway, he went back and he became the governor of Arabia Petraea. And the city of Petra is what we call it today. This is where the Templars went in 1170 to do whatever they did. And then Roger de Sudley went back and did whatever he did. So, so Ralph de Sudele, Ralph, uh, yes. And the um, the thinking is what that in Petra that there was a that the Templars brought their treasure that they found under the holy city there. Is that the thinking? Yeah, but their treasure wasn't gold. It was knowledge. It was knowledge of North America. Knowledge of North America and or John the Baptist bones. Yeah. Mary, Mary Magdalene's scroll, Jesus scroll, who knows what other scrolls are possible. Right. But definitely something that blackmailed the church, even to this day, uh, all through the 15, 1800s, they always had this blackmail to the Catholic church. And the Catholic church tried to exterminate them Um you know, it started early on Friday the 13th, 1307, but so many of them, you escaped. know, escaped or were let go and went to Scotland and, you know, everywhere else, uh, England, America. But um, the Cathars made an active, active push under the guise of the Jesuits um, who accompanied every, you know, missionary to America. And so these might have been the muscle men to basically kill the um what is the group rick the white uh the um the the saganes in america which is holy blood line mm -hmm. and that the catholic church wanted to wipe out that group in the americas yeah and also at the same time or before that their final push to kill all the, the Cathars up at Montsegur, correct? Yes. And so imagine how angry you would be <laughs> to be a group where everyone's killing you and trying to kill you and you're innocent of doing anything wrong. It's just your bloodline. But you've got the bloodline of Jesus and Mary, which is just one important bloodline in ancient history times. It is not the only one. There are several important bloodlines, but it's one of the major ones. Yes. 
And, and we know people today that are part of that bloodline that are very secret about it, but you know, because the Catholic church re- literally wants to kill them. So, so that's a fun yep. story. Um, <laughs> what do you know about the Melungians uh, having, is that the group with the horns or do you know anything about the Melungians? Yes. Uh, I don't know anything about horns, but they're dark skinned. In fact, they're downright blue skinned, dark wow. blue skin. Wow. They are um, concentrated. Their, their bloodline is concentrated in the Appalachians, Tennessee, North, South Carolina, up right through there. <coughs> um, one, one, and it's a family thing. Um, there is even um, a speculation, I don't think it's ever been tested, that there's something about their uh, physiology that uptakes silver, which makes their skin turn dark blue. Not mercury, silver, yeah. Correct, correct. Um, and uh, they are, as far as, DNA, their genetics are literally all over the place. <laughs> they've got Middle Eastern, they've got North African, they've got uh, Southern Spain, they've got um, just almost everything. And nobody knows exactly where they came from. Another speculation about it is that they were escaped escapees, escaped slaves from one of the Spanish conquistador groups. And that kind of makes sense. And so blue people, little blue people, obviously the thinking is that the aliens are gray, right? Grays because of the atmosphere up there? Uh, maybe. But maybe. It's completely speculation as far as I'm concerned. Okay. But, but blues, uh, stories in, and again, stories can be stories, but they can also be based in whatever, truth. Right. Um, that blues... Little blue people in New Zealand, Australia. Have you heard those of living in caves? Uh, Hawaii, Kauai, uh, uh, Lemuria. Is that blue type people? Is that possible? It's possible. I, I I know a gentleman who took colloidal silver as a supplement for many years. It, he took too much of it, and it's now you know caused a blood disease for him. But he was blue. He's less blue now since he stopped taking his colloidal silver, but his skin is blue. Well, the other story, uh, drinking gold, uh, you melt it down to a white powder and it's called misfat, like M-I-Z-F-A-T. And the Israelites were drinking misfat gold, which would have done what to you? or Extended your life. Philosopher's stone is what. The whole white gold thing was um, to be immortal. And so I have friends that do alchemy that, uh, you know, we'll, we'll be very excited to have him on, um, them on. Uh, and what do they think? That they can somehow prolong your life? That you can live to be hundreds of years if, old? Yeah, if they can find that formula for the Philosopher's Stone, then yeah, basically immortal. Uh, immo- Functionally immortal. And do you believe that that's real? That alchemists in ancient times or whenever may have lived hundreds of years or immortal? Do you believe that's possible? Um, 
I do believe it's possible. I don't know how to do it, or I'd probably be rich beyond anybody's means. But, um, yeah, and it's the same thing that people go to mineral spots for. I sat next to a guy. It was in the middle of COVID. I'm, I'm private in my seat. All of a sudden, this 25-year-old guy sits right next to me when there was another seat on the aisle. He starts talking and talking. He said he just went to a sweat camp, a sweat lodge with the Navajos and that these people are 120 years old and 125 and that they, the shamans that were there talking to him, they drink this paste that comes <laughs> off of the rocks. The rocks drip this paste down. And I haven't researched this enough yet. I'm sorry, you're sick, buddy. We're, we're almost done. Uh, I'll, I'll just do the talking. Just kidding. Uh, I need you, Rick. Don't go anywhere. Okay. Uh, the paste they, of the rocks mixes with the water, and that's all that these shamans drink. Do you have any? Have you ever heard that? Well, it would make it a mineral water. Um, the paste is basically a crystal that grows on the outside of the rock, due to the water inside the rock carries the minerals to the outside, and then the water evaporates, leaving this paste or a powder if it's dry enough and they're most of their environment is dry enough for that um but yeah the, the whole mineral water thing um is uh uh it's thousands of years old people went to mineral baths in ancient times whether it was to cure sickness or extend their life period or whatever it was uh, they had this long-held and strongly held belief that mineral water would cure all ills. And, and is that the thinking on the fountain of youth? One of them, which is by your neck of the woods, a site that we're very actively investigating. Yes. That, that's well, you know, there was a hotel there in the 19 teens, twenties and thirties that stayed full all the time because people wanted to come and bathe in that water. So right where I live, you have, it, you know, hundred years ago, hot springs, you yes. have cold springs, you know, uh, seven springs. That's where people went. Um, yes. And so he also told me about these fasts that these people do to have these vision quests. Uh, the Native Americans do it and they have entities, you know, call it it's in their head or it's out of their head or a combination of the two. You fast for a few days and entities being start to come to you. They talk to you. They interact with you. Is that your understanding? Yes. I mean, we're talking Bigfoot sitting right next to you and talking yes. to you. Yes. In physical form. So you see why the Native Americans do these fasts after a few days, because it, it, there's certainly powerful things. My goodness. Um, I just love peanut butter too much, um, <laughs> but I would do it. I would do, I, I think I could be mentally strong. I'm, I think. Um, so uh, getting to Sasquatch stories, Rick, what do you believe about them? And then I'm going to tell you that they're real. So go ahead. Uh, you don't have to tell me that they're real. I know that one. I have never actually caught sight. However, I've been in close proximity more than once um, 
I've had objects thrown across the path. I've had objects thrown into the fire. Uh, I've had, uh, I've heard vocalizations close enough that my skin crawled. Um, I found footprints. I found uh, cedar bark pulled off in such a way that I believe it was eventually woven into rope. But, and that's a Native American thing too. Cedar bark made pretty good cordage. Um, I have found scat. Um, What's and scat? I have smelled um, manure. Uh -huh. um, uh. And, uh, and I've smelled them. Supposedly they have a very pungent, very bad smell. It's strong. Uh, well, s some stories that have been relayed to me, which just, gosh, I need Iris to sort me. Look at all this stuff. <laughs> anyway, uh, the stories that I've heard, um, that they are real, that they uh, live in families, that they're possibly interdimensional, but that's another aspect to it that maybe they're not, you're saying. Um, but the, the, that they, are, they live in families that they're very good at hiding Yes. That if you're in a drum circle at a sweat lodge or just outside a sweat lodge, an Indian, you know, an Indian lodge, uh, I don't know if it has to be sweat, but, and you do a drum circle and you drum around and the person has their chance to, I, I, there's also singing that can go on, but more the drumming and the drumming, they like calls. that. Yeah. It calls them yes. and, and they come and they want to interact with humans again. Yep. Uh, story up in Canada where, you know, it's, it's, we've heard it up in Wisconsin where trees literally are being tipped over, tip, tip, tip. These are from 70, 80 year old men that I trust with my life that tell me these stories in the woods of, you know, all over the UP up there. Um, there are specialists up there that can, they're just, they're trying to find them. So anything else on that, Rick, for right this second, and I'll find my notes for next time. There are some really good sources for information about Bigfoot and their behaviors. Uh, there are also some really bad sources. Uh, just be careful which ones you believe. Well, like our friend, a guy, Kiwani Lesperitis, who had a, a wife that they both supposedly, you know, were speaking to, le you know, talking and, and automatic writing what these entities were saying to them. So the question is, are they actually talking, you know, communicating directly with these Sasquatches? Or is that literally a mental illness, uh, you know, schizophrenia, or is it a combination or just a belief system. Any of those things is possible. Um, one of the best written books I've ever encountered was written by Mary Green. And I don't remember the exact title. But it is about a family that raised a Bigfoot from infancy. Mm -hmm. And how that infant tore up Jack as a... As a basically a three-year-old that was the size of a 12-year-old human. Um, and 
his name is Fox. Uh, Fox is nearing the end of his life now, but there's a little bit of video of Fox out there someplace. So supposedly our government also captured a, uh, a Sasquatch Bigfoot type thing and had it chained up for a while and then it died. Yeah. Supposedly. Um, there's more than one type too. It's that's where it gets really interesting. Um, the, the Bigfoot of the Pacific Northwest is the eight to 10 footer. The Bigfoot of the Gulf Coast states and up into here is a six or seven footer. They have many of the same behavioral features, but not the same physiology or physique. They're all strong as all get out. Um, their colors can range just like hair color of humans. Um, and they're, I'm confident their behaviors are, are, are as great in range too. But my belief, and I don't know how to prove it without having one talking to me, is that they can see parts of the spectrum that we can't, which is how they know when there's a game camera around. Um, um, there, is a, there is some scientific basis for that speculation, but I, we don't really have time here. Well, that's fabulous. Oh, go ahead, Rick. Sorry. Uh, anyway, yeah, I, my contention is that a, a one-year-old human knows what a camera is and will ham for the camera. Hmm. A Bigfoot, if we presume that they're at least as intelligent as, say, a 12-year-old human, would want to avoid that camera, but would know what it was and would have the means to know where it is to avoid it. So that's that's my contention. Well, that's very good. Um you know, a lot of interesting stuff the government does with holograms or in the sky, all of a sudden a city can, you know, appear looking up in the clouds, right? Um, a lot of different things that we don't know about that they've been doing for a long time. Um, yeah, at least since the early 90s on that one, DARPA, DARPA put out a call for that in 93 or 4. I think the CIA has been doing really interesting stuff since, I don't know if that's the fifties or sixties or before that or what, but um, the thinking was that whales and dolphins, you know, that we used to have this telepathic communication with them, that we used to be able to do that. And we've obviously lost that. Um, the story was that, you know, the Indians, this group on the coast was hungry and they didn't have any food. And so, you know, the dolphin or is the whale, I guess, you know, literally brings them seals, you know. Um, so I, it makes sense that we've lost our ability to communicate with animals and that we used to have that certainly back into the Lemuria Atlantis times. Do you believe that that's possible? I believe i don't know i'm curious about it what i can say is that stories of dolphins coming to rescue humans go back at least four thousand years wow uh on the minoan vases the dolphins are so important right yes uh, and also part of all the royal um imagery they had dolphins and bulls that's what what they were and so the 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 
big test of a man or a boy was to run towards the bull. You then grab the bull by the horns and you do a somersault, a flip, right? And land on the backside. Uh, would yeah. you do, the question, Rick, is would you do that at your current age and state right now? No, <laughs> no. <clears throat> I'm, I'm not in the business of grabbing a bull by the horns. And doing a flip over it, landing on the backside. Well, I would have been, I would have been more gambling on it or something. This right uh, here is a, this right here is the biggest animal I, I deal with on a regular basis. Oh, look who's avoiding the camera. Hey, yeah, I see you looking. I and now you have to look. Yeah, really looking. All right, so we'll get to one last thing of spirits, and then we'll go back to our real show, which is true archaeology, you know, false archaeology, you know, whatever you want to call it, but um, spirits that basically, I know Native American people that have had spirits that have been trapped in them and they have gone to medicine men, they've gone to people and with sage, you know, they start removing the spirits, basically saying, okay, it's time to go. Thank you for the visit. Um, and then you got to sage the whole house starting in the bottom. You can put sage in your shoes, but that those spirits dig into you. And, you know, some of them will not go. Uh, <coughs> generations of these spirits, they're bored. They want to, they're bored. They want to attach themselves. This one quick story, and then I'll let you jump in is, had this one that had dug in real deep to this guy and he got real depressed for a while. And so he goes to this shaman or medicine man and all of a sudden the goat lies on the massage table, uses crystals, and all of a sudden right over the chest, the crystal shattered. And these are the most trusted people that I know. This is a true story as far as I'm concerned. The crystal shattered and the shaman said, whoa, that's never happened before. This is a little over my head. You're going to need to go to, you know, John over here. He's the guy to deal with this. So anyway, spirits, what do you have to say? Um, they manifest in very different ways. Um, shadow people, shadow animals, maybe even shadow trucks. I saw one of those yesterday. Uh, it could have been just diesel exhaust, but it sure looked like it was in the form of a truck. And where I saw it, was exactly where a guy died while driving a truck. Wow. And and the truck ran into the service station, took out all the pumps in the front end of the service station. Um, so am I completely convinced that spirits exist? Well, yeah, I'm not I, I'm not adept at detecting them or dealing with them, but I've seen enough to say, yeah, there's something going on there. Like my experience was I was I was looking at a guy, you know, just staring him in the eyes, you know, just deep staring for a few minutes. And then the shadows start changing and I, you know, the blacks and I started seeing I saw Abraham Lincoln. I saw uh, my grandmother uh, in his face. That's what turned into from his face. And, and then I and then once on mushrooms in uh, Amsterdam, totally legal. I looked at my hairy leg and Jesus Christ with his thorns 
was in my hairy leg and he was like this. <laughs> he had his mouth open with the thorns. I said, oh my gosh. And so anyway, the question is, is that all in my head? Is it out there or is it a combination of t- both? I don't know the answer to that one. I think it's However, a combination. I, combination. I'll tell you one story and then I'll quit on this one. Okay. When I was uh, 14 years old, my parents, extended family, aunts, uncles, grandparents, we all went on a little field trip to a place called Equality, Illinois. And the place, the home is was actually named uh, Hickory Ridge, but the colloquial name for it was the old slave house because a place in Illinois, a guy had slaves. He couldn't own them in Illinois, but it could lease them from Alabama, and he did so. And the legislature okayed all this. The, the legislature that included Abraham Lincoln, incidentally. Um, up to 738 slaves, I believe it was. Anyway, we're going through the tourist trap version of the old slave house, and the very upper floor is where the slaves were kept. There was a thumb rack and a couple other torture devices that were probably never part of the actual house, but made good tourist trap stuff. So we all lined up for a photograph, a Polaroid in this case. My mom took the photograph. She wasn't in the picture, but there was an extra figure in the picture standing next to me, I might add. And uh, he wasn't in the photograph. He was only in the negative. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, he was Uncle Bob. He was the old slave sire guy. Uh, who lived to be 114 years old, incidentally. Um, I guess his job when he lived there was to sire children. Wow. I could do that. Um. <laughs> anyway, uh, that that is hard evidence that was destroyed as soon as she took it down and showed it to the guy who lived in the house. And he crumpled it up and threw it away and said, lady, I have to live here. Please." Don't oh, my me. gosh. Unbelievable. Uh, yeah. Orbs, rods. You take pictures, you got these blue dots, you know, it's just things to investigate. So, yep. um, all right. So just a few more minutes, rapid fire of some possible conversations that we'll have in the future. So um, tell us about Prince Matic coming to America. Prince Matic. There are two dates proposed for this. I lean towards 670 AD. The other date was 1170 AD. 670 AD. Um, sorry, that's not right. 570 AD. Um, and this is where it gets really interesting and complicated because at that time, getting back to the church of Cold D, they used a different calendar starting point. Whereas the rest of the world, um, whether it was Julian calendar, Gregorian calendar, they used the birth of Christ as the beginning of our calendar. The Chaldee used the crucifixion as the beginning of their calendar. So 570 would have been um, 33 years less than that on the Chaldee calendar. So it would have been 547 or whatever it would have been. Uh, 527, 537, someplace in there. But it coincides with a 
extraterrestrial strike that hit in the Atlantic Ocean. We have various forms of real hard evidence that this event actually occurred. And it was also the beginning of what we call the Dark Ages. And it was not a metaphorical name. It was literally the northern hemisphere of the Earth went dark and you couldn't see stars, you couldn't see sky. You had eternal winter, uh, you had, uh, you had uh, starvation and whatnot and plagues. Um, and Maddock was at sea when it happened. He was the admiral of the Welsh Navy. His brother, the king, um, because Maddock was a prince, his brother, the king, was back in Wales dealing with starvation of his people. It was also the only time in history that Wales imported wheat. They grew wheat on their own very well, which is one reason the Romans wanted that land. Um, but Maddock, being at sea when this thing struck, was driven further west by a tsunami a mile and a half tall. Uh, most of his fleet was destroyed when it was pushed up onto the shore. 27 miles or so pushed up on the shore in the Carolinas, but he probably went around Florida and got into Mobile Bay. Um, Ten years later, he shows back up in Wales, having rebuilt the fleet, and the survivors went back to Wales. And they're still starving in Wales after 10 years. The Dark Ages lasted till 850, 900 AD. Um, but he gets back, he tells his brother about this land it's all green and it's very sparsely populated and you can grow almost anything there and and it's rich in all these resources and said okay let's load up and go and they did um various records indicate that somewhere between 700 and 1200 shiploads of people and goods and everything went to america the brother the king of Wales went with them and within two years he was dead shot to death by Native Americans uh, his son the, the heir to the throne was at that time only like eight years old he could not be coronated so a regent would be taking care of everything <coughs> Maddock and everybody else in the court did not trust the regent, so they did not tell the court that their king was dead. They put him in a little cave in uh, what is now DeSoto Falls, Alabama, and let the body desiccate because a 25-pound dried body is a lot easier to transport than you know, whatever he was, a 180-pound human being. And when they got back to Wales, they found out that that they realized that the, the son was still two years out from being coronated. So they hid the body again in a different cave until the regent was no longer influencing the court. Uh, the king who died, his name was Arthur II. So it was King Arthur II. <coughs> Prince Matic was, was rumored to have been in North America for six or 800 years. Uh, I mean, the rumor survived for six or 800 years. He didn't. He probably returned to England, uh, Wales. It wasn't England then, and participated in the court. There are uh, just a couple of mentions of him in the old Chronicles of Wales uh, from that time period. 
but there's also another mention on a, on a landstone with his name on it. So, and by the way, that's in Colbert alphabet. Good job, Rick. Um, and really interesting when you look at a map of where Wales is and where um, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, the tin uh, Cornwall, yeah. Cornwall. I mean, these are major shipping, just ideal spots. Um, and then you have all of these stone monoliths that are just all over there, you know, all upper France, you know, all, these stone monoliths are something that we're going to get to the bottom of, Rick, uh, as best as we possibly can, because Karnak and, and uh, men here's and they are just very interesting, aligned to north, south, or alignments to everything. What do you have to say? Pretty much. Uh, we don't understand it. We know it's important. We just don't understand what they were doing. That's all I can really say. They did things that were absolutely amazing as far as logistic and moving those heavy stones. Because particularly at Karnak, those stones are not native there. They're brought in from 100 and 150 miles away. Um, some of them are 18, 20 tons. I don't know how they did that. Nobody else does either. But we got to do our best to figure it out and bring all the best in the world that are dealing with these type of topics. You know, hundreds of books on these topics, thousands of books on these sites. Um, it's either UFOs helped or giants were living then. I know the bell beakers were tall, six, seven feet. Uh, Adina became the bell beakers in America, perhaps. Um, those are not giants at six feet not giants at seven feet, right? So it- Right, but they also had different cranial. Their, their skulls are different. So a whole bunch of different, you know, just human trees and, and genetic, you know, makeups, Melungians, Africans, you know, all these different, and some of them die out and another thing to investigate, but um, either UFOs help do these things or giants, you know, may have carved these big giant monoliths in Montana, you know, face carvings on mountains, like were giants moving these huge rocks or were the people really smart back in the ancient days and they could move this stuff like Edward uh, Leerscherken at, uh, at Coral Leeds Castle Gallen, in yeah. Leeds Gallen in Coral Castle, Florida. He moved this stuff by himself. Yes. Uh, is that a good example for what people could have done around the world? And these people were so bored Maybe they had nothing else to do. So go ahead. Well, uh, there's a more recent example, even than Ed Leach Gallon. This guy's name's Wally Wallington. He's in Michigan. Uh, I, I don't know where what his status is nowadays, but uh, 10, 12 years ago, he was moving giant monoliths by himself <coughs> with leverage. No magic. All right. Rick, thanks for doing this podcast, being uh, sick. You are a true hero and warrior to the cause of truth. And I, uh, I knight you, uh, Mr. Rick of the Truth Circle. So, Okay. All, <laughs> All right. right. We'll, we'll do this again real soon. All right. Good job, Rick. I'll talk Thank to you, you soon, okay? All, All right. right. Bye. Take five minutes, okay? Yeah. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs>